You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. This morning's passage comes from Romans 15, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning and we bow in humility. We are well aware of our brokenness. We're aware of our sin. We're aware of our failure. And yet we have been reminded this morning of the great hope that we have in Christ. And it is through Christ that we now come before you. Knowing that he alone is the way to you. There is no peace with you, O holy God, apart from Jesus Christ. So we come to you through the merit of Christ, given to us by faith. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would use the infallible word of God this morning to inform us and to conform us. Do what only you can do, Holy Spirit. Keep us from becoming hearers of the word and not doers. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if any of you have ever heard of something called negative expectancy Disconfirmation. Negative expectancy. Disconfirmation. It's an effect uncovered by marketing psychologists, and it refers to consumer products that fail to deliver on their promised effects. According to research, we have a bias toward being more angry when a product fails to perform than to be happy when it lives up to its claims. What's so interesting about this is is that I came across an article that applied this research to politics and the broken promises of politicians. Here's what the article said. If politicians are ever to be able to lead, there will have to be an end at some point 
to the negative expectancy disconfirmation effect. We have to learn to trust again. Great leaders require not only the ability to take bold action, but the willingness of citizens to allow them to try to win without having to make wild and unrealistic promises. On the morning after, it would be nice to wake up and be able to feel that whoever won or lost, the change is one we can truly believe in. Now, this happens in many areas of life. We are disappointed when someone is revealed to be dishonest or even deceitful. Promises are made and we get our hopes up only to have them dashed. Friends, this is why the very idea of hope is so difficult for so many. In fact, many would agree with Nietzsche that hope is the worst of evils for it only prolongs the torment of men. As we continue to work our way through our Advent series this morning, we're going to examine what Scripture teaches about hope, and specifically how it ties hope to the person and work of Jesus Christ. As a means of inviting us all to think deeply about the biblical concept of hope, Let me share with you a quotation from theologian Michael Byrd. When I came across this this past week, it's one of those times when you're reading and you're studying and it just stops you and you read it over and over again. This is what Byrd writes. Hope is not optimism. Rather, hope is the audacity of faith under adversity. Hope is the cheering and triumph for what others deem a lost cause. Hope expiates the misery of life. Hope is currency in the land of melancholy. Hope is the dancing when the music has long ceased. Hope is bread for the soul that is starved. Hope is the voice that whispers to us that all things are possible. Hope is the grace to face our fears, knowing that there is someone greater than the sum of all fears. Hope holds out a light rather than curses the dark. Hope is the physician of a terrified soul. Hope is the hero of the weak. Hope is defiance in the face of the tyrant. Then he concludes with this. The gospel is the story of the invasion of hope into a world that knows only despair and doubt. The gospel tells us about men and women doomed for a hopeless end, discovering in Christ Jesus an endless hope. Hope is that shameless confidence that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and that his promises to us are totally trustworthy. Our text this morning reminds us that Christ is the foundation and the source of all true and lasting hope. We will see the truth of what birds so powerfully expressed. 
Hope is that shameless confidence that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and that his promises to us are totally trustworthy. Romans chapter 15 and verse 7 serves as a transition between Paul's helpful instruction in Romans 14 regarding issues of Christian liberty and how weak and strong Christians can walk together in unity in spite of their differences. Essentially, verse 7 is Paul's conclusion to that conversation, but it also sets up the six verses we're studying this morning. So look at verse 7 with me. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Friends, how can very different people find peace and harmony with each other? You see, when God gathers a group of people together who are quite diverse ethnically and socioeconomically, when there are differences of both opinion and conviction, what hope is there that diverse people will not only be able to tolerate each other, but they will be able to treasure each other? Well, here's how Scripture answers that question. If you have been gloriously reconciled to God through Christ, then you have also been reconciled to each other. If God has welcomed a whole bunch of people that are different than you are, then you need to welcome them as well. Vertical reconciliation makes horizontal reconciliation possible. Therefore... Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this has been the plan all along. God's eternal redemptive plan has always been to gather a diverse people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and to create something new and glorious. And one of the distinguishing marks of this new people is the presence of hope. That's the transition that we find here in the text. In fact, in 1 Peter 3.15, as followers of Jesus, we are told to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us, which means they are around us and they see something in us and they ask, what is the reason for your hope? It's a distinguishing characteristic of followers of Jesus. Then in Hebrews 10, as Believers were encouraged. We are encouraged to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Friends, the plan of God, which culminated in the person and work of Jesus Christ, was to create a people filled with and marked by an unshakable hope. The word of God, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, shows us how this plan unfolded and in showing us how the plan unfolded it also gives us clearly the source of our hope we see this in Romans chapter 15 verses 8 through 13 first I want you to see that hope is promised to all hope is promised to all this is found in verses 8 through 11 look at the text with me For I tell you that Christ became a servant... 
to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, I'll warn you at the outset, this first point is the majority of the sermon. So as I'm working through it, don't think, oh my goodness, he has three points and this is just the first one. But this is the bulk of of what I want to explain to you this morning. So stick with me. In verses 8 and 9, Paul is simply explaining how different pieces of God's redemptive plan fit together. If God's ultimate aim was what Paul describes in Ephesians 2, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Friends, if, if this was always the plan, then how would God bring it to fulfillment? How would that happen? Well, according to verses 8 and 9, there were three stages of development. And I want you to see these in the text. First, verse 8. Promises were given to the patriarchs. Promises were given to the patriarchs. Uh, What's this referring to? Well, in the wisdom of the triune God, Israel was selected by God for a unique relationship based entirely on grace. This relationship was expressed first through a covenant made with Abraham when God said in Genesis 12, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the first stage. Promises were given to the patriarch. Second, verse 8 again. Christ became a servant to the Jews in order to show God's truthfulness. So a promise was made. Now Christ becomes a servant to the Jews in order to show God's truthfulness. A promise was made to Abraham. But as the story unfolds, around 2,000 years pass by and the promise still hasn't been fulfilled. But finally, God's truthfulness is proven when the suffering servant arrives on the scene. When Christ comes to earth, when he is born as a baby in Bethlehem and then crucified as king of the Jews only to be raised from the dead in victory, friends, in Christ, the promise to the patriarchs was confirmed. The undeniable conclusion was this. God's word is true. And God can be trusted. Now notice the third and final stage of development here in verse 9. All of this happened. The suffering servant came not just to fulfill a promise made to Israel, but also to display mercy And give hope to Gentiles as well. Brothers and sisters, consider for a moment the glory of God's redemptive plan. While God sovereignly elected Israel to play a special role, we know that from the very beginning, 
the good news of the gospel was intended to be, as the angel announced in Luke 2, good news of great joy for all people. This is the point of verses 9, 10, 11, and 12. These four verses should bolster our hope in God's perfect plan. They do this by assuring us that his heart was always set on both Jew and Gentile. The plan was always for a global family of blood-bought believers. Friends, this is made abundantly clear by Paul's many references here to the Old Testament scriptures. Let's just walk through them. Look at verse 9. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This quotation is taken straight from Psalm 18, verse 49. One theologian calls it an example of Paul's messianic exegesis. You see, instead of the I in Psalm 18 referring to David, it seems Paul is reading the I as referring to Christ. Which means, if you look through that whole psalm, it means that Christ is the one who suffers. Christ is the one who is vindicated. And as the Gentiles obey the Messiah, they are led in a great course of praise for the mercy they have received from Christ. Look now at verse 10. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This quotation is drawn from Deuteronomy 32, 43. And it's the last verse in an extended song of Moses where he recounts God's gracious calling of Israel. And I want you to catch this. He recounts God's gracious calling of Israel Israel's rebellion against God, and then God's unfailing covenant love for and victory on Israel's behalf in spite of their sin. Paul is using this quotation to emphasize an extraordinary reality. And it's this. Gentiles are invited to rejoice with Israel because of God's unwavering love, knowing that they, as Gentiles, will ultimately benefit from God's unwillingness to give up on Israel. One day, God will fulfill his promise to Israel, a Messiah will come, and God will gather a new people to himself a people described this way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Finally, look at verse 11. And again, 
Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. This quotation is from Psalm 117, verse 1, which means that Paul is quoting half the psalm because it's only two verses. Again, the the emphasis of this is similar to verse 10. The psalmist calls upon the nations to praise the Lord for his faithfulness to Israel. Obviously, this foreshadows the wondrous time when all the nations will gather around the throne and praise the victorious Lamb. Brothers and sisters, all of this, this entire explanation by the Apostle Paul is rooted in the authority of Scripture as it is written. This should only reinforce and deepen our hope, the hope that unfolds before us on every page of our Bibles. This is no plan B. This is the eternal plan of God. And now before moving on, uh, let me try to bring together what we've talked about so far. The connection between God's election of Israel and the hope of the Gentiles and why this matters to us. I I want to invite you to consider this explanation I came across from theologian Michael Goheen. He so helpfully explains how God planned to use Israel to bring the nations to worship God. In Redeemer Faith family, you will hear much for us in this excellent explanation. Goheen writes, here was God's plan for Israel. And listen carefully to this. To be a distinctive people displaying an attractive lifestyle to God's glory before the surrounding nations, Israel was obliged to face in three directions at once to look backward to creation, embodying God's original design and intention for human life, to look forward to the consummation, bearing in its life God's promise of the goal of universal history, a restored humanity on a new earth, to look outward to the nations, confronting the idolatry of the nations for whose sake it had been chosen. Did you catch that? Confronting the idolatry of the nations for whose sake it had been chosen. And then Goheen concludes, all of this, all of this was for the sake of the world. All of this was for the sake of the world that the nations might come to praise and know the true and living God. Friends, rescuing the Gentiles was not an afterthought, but it was part of God's unswerving divine purpose for the whole world. This is what leads us to the New Testament church, the redeemed people of God, filled with the Spirit, commissioned to take the gospel to all the peoples of the world. Friends, it's this plan 
fulfilled in Christ that ultimately delivered the gospel to you and to me. To be clear, if you're here this morning and you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, it is because God keeps His promises. His word can be trusted. There is no other source of true and lasting hope. Let me offer a warning before moving on. To dismiss the word of God and scoff at the plan of God and reject the Son of God is to foolishly embrace a life of utter hopelessness. And if this hopelessness is not abundantly clear during your life, it will be impossible to deny at your death. Not only will everything you've hoped in pass away, but everyone left mourning your death will do so with a profoundly painful and hopeless sorrow. Friends, as we have walked through the suffering and death of two of our sisters, this, this truth has been right before us. Could you imagine? Could you imagine going through what Jocelyn and Mary and their families and their friends walked through without this hope? This sure and certain hope which finds its foundation in promises made to the patriarchs. Our Old Testaments have everything to do with the hope that we now tangibly experience in suffering. There is a direct line from the promise of God to the patriarchs to the hope that we now have in Christ, the suffering servant. Make no mistake, this was God's perfect plan. This is why Paul offers a fourth Old Testament quotation, and it's here that we move from hope promised to all to hope fulfilled in Christ. Verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, and even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul pulls this final Old Testament quotation from Isaiah 11, verse 10, and it fits so well with what we studied last week. You see, the promised child of Isaiah 9 is the root of Jesse in chapter 11. The one who will ascend to the throne of David to rule over an eternal kingdom in Isaiah 9 is, is also the one who arises to rule the Gentiles in chapter 11. The one promised to Israel in chapter 9, whose name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is also the one in whom the Gentiles will hope. In Isaiah chapter 11. 
Friends, perhaps the most shocking part of this final reference is that it reminds us how God's plan to send a heavenly king who will ultimately rescue his people and restore all things is not first a message of judgment, but it is first an invitation to all people to find hope in Christ. This is the beauty of what we encountered last week. This is the hope of Jews and Gentiles alike. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or we could say, more than that, we now hope in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So what does a truth like this lead to? What is the response of those who have tasted of this exceeding kindness Well, the response is worship. It's worship. It's Holy Spirit-fueled praise. That's what we find in verse 13. Hope promised all, hope fulfilled in Christ, and finally, hope displayed in praise. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You can almost feel how the excitement has been building as Paul has been making his case. He's been exalting Christ as the hope of the nations. In verse 13, he concludes and offers a doxological prayer, a prayer which drives home the central point he has presented. And it makes clear that the hope of believers is not, listen, it makes clear that the hope of believers is not like the hope we are sold by a dishonest politician or a deceitful salesman. No, Here is the good news of Paul's argument culminating in verse 13. True and lasting hope is not something you can manufacture, and it's not something you can muster up in your own strength. No, it comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from the Holy Spirit who powerfully works in you to increase your faith, to give you joy and peace in the reality of the gospel 
and all of this shows up, it is displayed in unquenchable hope. Why? Because the source of your hope has nothing to do with you. Because the source of your hope has nothing to do with you. It is rooted in the eternal plan of God to give His Son as a sufficient sacrifice for sinners with no regard to ethnicity or any other external factor. Salvation is by sovereign grace and the hope of Christ in you, brothers and sisters, is now strengthened and stirred up by the indwelling Holy Spirit so that you will abound in hope. So Christian friend, if you find yourself here this morning and you look at your life and you say, I'm, I'm lacking this sense of hope, I would encourage you to return to the promises of Scripture to behold their fulfillment in Christ, to return to the glories of the gospel, and to ask the Holy Spirit to stir up in you this gospel hope. And if you're here this morning and you've walked through most of your life, wanting hope, desiring hope, latching on to promises made by different people in different places, only to find yourself disappointed. Without reservation, friend, I can point you to the Scriptures, to promises made and promises kept. You will not be disappointed if you turn to Christ and embrace the hope that is only found in Him. Let's pray together.